Welcome to Fast Lane with Sarah Jane, a podcast for women who are on the move, managing life and family. Your host, Sarah Jane, is building a tribe and talking about the things that affect the daily lives of moms. You can expect real conversations about managing chaos, finding ways to take care of mind and body, and stepping outside your comfort zone on the way to living your best life. Hold on for a wild ride. Now, let's get started. Happy Thursday. You are in the fast lane with Sarah Jane. And today I am speaking with a fellow toxin nerd. I'm going to say that because I did see that you've called yourself a toxin nerd and um, I am in the same boat. So I want to welcome Laura Adler in the fast lane with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat. So I want to make sure that we hit some pretty basic things because I think people have no idea the toxicity they're exposed to on a daily basis because we just do what everyone else does, right? We don't know better until we learn better. And so first of all, I want to know how you became uh, who you are and why you do what you do. So what's your background? Um, my, my, I'm actually self completely self-taught in this space, which is um, surprising for a lot of people considering um, the the degree to which I, I get into the, the research. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of stumbled into the environmental health space um, a little bit on accident, although there is a little bit of a, um, a, a sort of interesting twist to that. Um, uh, I was always interested in health um, as uh, young adults, um, you know, just personally, um, and was interested in in kind of pursuing work in that space professionally. So I, I stepped into the world of, of health coaching as a means of, you know, talking to people about good nutrition and sort of the basic fundamentals of health. And in in doing work in that space, I had um, clients that, you know, most people were just re- really just trying to lose weight. I wasn't working with anybody with that had serious health issues. It was just sort of superficial weight loss um, that people were seeking um, or sometimes more significant. And um, most of my clients, you know, they did all the, my, the dietary and lifestyle recommendations that I'd made, they lost the weight, but I had a handful of clients that like they did everything and nothing happened for them. Mm-hmm. And I, as a new health coach, I was like, I'm clearly missing something. I'm doing something wrong. What am I missing? And so I started digging into the research on resistant weight loss. And that's really kind of what cracked open the door into this whole space of environmental health, environmental medicine, um, and specifically at that time, environmental chemicals that can alter metabolism in ways that are either make weight loss a little bit more challenging or that predispose people to gain weight. Um, So that really was kind of mind blowing because I spent at that point, you know, 10 years reading every book I could get on health and nutrition. I had gone to nutrition school to be a health coach and none of this was ever discussed. Mm -hmm. And at the same time that that was happening, my sister-in-law was pregnant with my niece, who's now I think she's 13 now. Uh, I think she's j- or just turning 13. And um, that's my benchmark for kind of how long I've been in this space is how old is she? Um, and um, I started researching the products that, you know, babies, mattresses and cribs and all of this stuff for her, because I was interested in her getting the healthiest stuff. 
And I, again, my mind was blown in looking at the research into the chemicals that are used in some of these products that have known health effects. Mm -hmm. And it was really, um, enraging, to be honest, like that's like, you know, what propels me in this space is, um, it's, it's not okay that companies are continuing to use products that have even questionable health effects, certainly the ones that have established health effects. Um, and, and that's really what, um, inspired me to kind of step into this space and have a bigger dialogue, um, around environmental health, um, uh, environmental chemical exposures and health effects and chronic disease. Um, pretty much every chronic disease out there, while environmental toxins might not be a causative factor, they can absolutely be a, a underlying factor or, or a contributing factor um, to those conditions. So I think it's important for people to not just address diet and lifestyle and, and, and all of that sort of basic health optimization stuff, but that also address uh, these environmental exposures. And if anyone listening has either themselves experienced this or talked to someone who will say, well, I changed my diet and I'm exercising and I'm still not losing weight and they get so upset about it, but people don't realize that it's not just what you put in your body, it's what's on your body and what's around your body because every single thing that you put on your body is absorbed into your skin. Uh, not everything, most, many things, certainly not everything. Um, and that's actually, uh, uh, uh something that I have to, um, I, that I end up breaking apart for people okay. because, you know, certainly if we think about our makeup, like our makeup sits on our skin. So not everything that we put on the skin gets absorbed. Um, there's a lot of different variables that can determine whether or not what we put on our skin enters into the bloodstream and kind of passes through the different layers of the skin. And the primary one is like, how big is the molecule? What's the molecular size? And so large molecules are not going to pass easily through the skin into the bloodstream. Small molecules will. The problem is that a lot of the chemicals that are used in our personal care products are these very small molecular sized chemicals. So a lot of them do end up in our bloodstream and sometimes very quickly, sometimes they take longer. It really, there's so many different variables, but the point is that, yeah, you know, we are being exposed to all of these different chemicals, whether we're breathing them in, whether they are eating them um, or whether we're absorbing them through our skin. And to your point about like, you know, people not maybe being able to lose weight, it's not it's yes, it's what we eat and it's our lifestyle and it's our stress and it's toxic exposures, but it's also our genetics, right? And our, you know, our epigenetics and what happened when we were developing in utero, what were, what was our mom exposed to? What was our grandmother or grandfather exposed to that might predispose us to be more, um, uh, prone to gaining weight or more prone to developing cancer or more prone to developing, you know, dementia or something like that. That's where we see disease runs in our family, but there's so much that we can do to, to modify, um, the, the, uh, our predisposition to some of those things. So one thing that is brought up a lot that a lot of people do not know the definition of, so I'm going to let you um, inform everyone, what is exactly is an endocrine disruptor? 
Right. So an endocrine disruptor is just any chemical, and this is not a purely synthetic chemicals. Natural compounds can do this too. Um, it's any chemical that can interfere with um, our natural hormones, uh, either hormone production or hormone docking, hormone signaling, hormone metabolism. So anything that basically masquerades as a hormone in the body. Um, and so they're often referred to as xeno, they could be called xenoestrogens, for example, within the context of it being a, a foreign estrogen, xeno means foreign. So it's like a, a, a molecule or a compound that enters into the body that can behave as estrogen or as testosterone, either as an um, antagonist or, or an um, a, a mimic um, of, of these natural hormones. And unfortunately, a lot of the chemicals that we're exposed to are classified as endocrine disruptors. And some of them are gonna target specific tissues. So there are certain chemicals that have a, um, uh, affinity towards the thyroid. So they will um, displace iodine in the thyroid and those can be problematic for certain sets of reasons. Um, and then you've got, you know, synthetic estrogens, chemicals that su suppress testosterone. So there's all of these different, um, uh, ways in which endocrine disruptors can impact us. But I think the important thing to know when we're talking about endocrine disruptors is that they behave um, contrary to the way that toxicology tends to consider chemicals being harmful. So toxicology takes the approach of the dose makes the poison, which means that in order for something to have a bad effect on us, a negative effect on us, we have to be exposed to a large quantity, right? It's the dose that makes the poison. This is, you know, 16th century um, uh, foundations of toxicology uh, was, you know, based on this concept of the dose makes the poison. Um, and that's, you know, large exposures can be very dangerous and very toxic and very small exposures. They're not a problem our bodies can handle that. That's the general premise of toxicology. When it comes to endocrine disrupting chemicals, they don't play by those rules. Small, very small exposures can actually be more impactful because our body already communicates, um, hormones are communication messengers. That's kind of what, how I like to think of them. And, and they communicate in extremely low levels. So the hormones that are naturally coursing through our body that are, you know, uh, uh, commanding our reproduction, that our growth, development, everything, um, uh, the levels of hormones in the body are extremely low, parts per trillion, if you wanted to use that sort of unit of measurement, extremely tiny levels. And so when we're exposed to similarly tiny levels, that's the frequency that our body understands. So small exposures to endocrine disrupting chemicals in parts per trillion, parts per billion, whatever, um, can be bioactive, meaning they can have an impact on the body in our own biology um, at those low levels. So that's why those are, are extra concerning um, of all chemicals of endocrine disruptors. So when you're talking about large exposures versus small, uh, large versus small exposures, um, is there anything about repetitive exposure. So even if it's yeah. just a little bit, but it's constant, is it about the same thing? Um, so it's not, it, so there is a, um, when it comes to endocrine disrupting chemicals, there is a additive or amplifi amplification effect. So it's, you know, it's, it's very hard in research to study 
um, multiple things at once because there's more variables that you introduce, the more complex, the, the you know, the muddy, the results come and you have to parse out all the, the, the data. And so it's, um, this is why chemicals are always studied in isolation one at a time. They're not studied as a, you know, the, the sort of exposome of all the things that we're being exposed to. Um, and so, but there is research looking at the additive effect of, and the amplification effect of, of multiple endocrine disrupting chemicals at once. So one plus one does not equal two, at least that's what the data seems to show is that one plus one might equal five or 10, right? So in the presence of two endocrine disrupting chemicals is that the effect is worse than the sum of its parts. Um, so there's that component where we have this additive or amplified effect, but there is also the fact that we are being constantly exposed every single day. We have constant levels. So when the, um, you know, we have our, our human biomonitoring studies through NHANES um, uh, uh, research um, with the CDC that's looking for levels of chemicals in the human population in the US, um, we're finding that some of these chemicals um, are found in, you know, 93, 95, 98% of the population. The levels are very constant. And the reason for that is because we're being exposed constantly and we're either building them up in our bodies. And this is going to be more true for persistent chemicals that stick around um, for non-persistent chemicals, like um, some of these endocrine disrupting chemicals like BPA and phthalates that actually have a very short transit time in the body. Like they can, our bodies can excrete them um, in, you know, 24 ish hours in short period of time. Um, which is great, like that's good news that our bodies can get rid of them. But if we're taking them in faster than our bodies can metabolize them, then our levels are constant. So there's layers. It's like, yes, they're a problem at low levels and there's a cocktail effect and we're being exposed all the time. So we really, like, we really just need to get educated on what we're around. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I was just having this conversation with a, a friend that, you know, I think that the, my side of the conversation is working with, you know, health professionals to help them be able to dialogue with their clients or patients about this in a more um, tangible and accessible way. Mm -hmm. um, but the onus is on the individual to be proactive and make changes. And, and yes, it's a yes and. So yes, we have to do that. And it shouldn't really be our responsibility. We shouldn't have to do this, right? right. Like this is where, you know, from a public health perspective, like this is all downstream work that we're doing. And the upstream work is to properly regulate chemicals and to push for safer um, uh, regulations or regulations that are, that are, are more restrictive um, and better testing of chemicals. Um, that's really ultimately what we need, but the progress in upstream um, is, is incredibly slow. And so we're left with our own responsibility to take care of ourselves with these downstream interventions that don't ultimately fix the problem for everyone. It just might help the problem for us. Mm -hmm. And what do you think when we're talking about repeated exposure and are you thinking that goes hand in hand with infertility? Because people struggle so much with infertility and it really becomes a personal issue. Like they think they are the problem. Yeah. But you know, what, where, where's the missing piece that a lot of people aren't seeing there? 
Right. Well, I mean, there's unfortunately a lot of the, a lot of these chemicals that we're exposed to in our food, in our drinking water, in the air inside our homes, from our personal care products, our cookware, all of the stuff that we're surrounded by that we don't normally don't give any second thought to, you know, this is where a lot of these exposures to these hormone disrupting chemicals are coming into play. And obviously reproduction is a, a, an orchestra that is conducted by our hormones. And so when we have alterations in our hormones, that in and of itself can lead to increased um, uh, fertility issues. You also have chemicals that like directly affect egg production, that directly affect sperm, um, sperm health, that, you know, we have PF, these, uh, what are called PFAS chemicals, these per perfluoroalkyl substances that are found in like nonstick cookware and grease proof um, pack food packaging, and um, it's a contam major contaminant in drinking water around the country. Um, that there's plenty of research that shows that these PFAS chemicals can negatively impact sperm, sperm production. And so we have all of these different things kind of coming at us at the same time that we don't that aren't in our sphere of thinking. Like again, when you were thinking about health, we're thinking about like nutrition and exercise and not mm -hmm. smoking and getting good sleep. And all mm -hmm. of those things are important. Like all of those things are still important. And I think the, I mean, we are seeing fertility rates declining around the world, you know, in different mm -hmm. countries at different rates, but like, yes, this is a common thing that we're starting to see more of, or the, the, you know, the line is sort of inching down a little bit lower and lower. Um, and when that's happening at the degree that it's happening, we have to say there's something in the environment that's ca causing this. It's not a localized mm -mm. or, you know, like there's something that's causing this. And we have all this data showing that, you know, these hormone disrupting chemicals or, or other chemicals that might be a developmental toxin that might, you know, not, lead to fertility, but loss of pregnancies, you know, miscarriage and things like that. Um, it, it's important for people to recognize that it's not all on like an individual's shoulders, right? Like we can't be responsible for the contaminants in our drinking water. That's not our fault, right? That's not our fault. And so I think there's definitely a lot of you know, personal guilt and like, what's wrong with me that comes up in that conversation. And I think that, you know, not that we're necessarily seeking someone to blame, because I don't think that's the conversation either, right. but that we can at least acknowledge, like there are things outside of us that might be part of the problem. And there have been, um, you know, studies looking at the uh, amount of some of these chemicals in people undergoing fertility treatments and some of the people that struggle the most have the highest levels of, you know, these, some of these endocrine disrupting uh, plasticizer chemicals like phthalates and BPA. And, you know, that's not, a, it's a correlative, it's not causative, but there's enough data that you can kind of connect the dots and say, okay, here's, here's animal studies that show that this is affects your follicle stimulating hormone or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and then we also see this mirrored in human population through correlative data. And so we can start connecting those dots. And I think that's kind of where we're at. Because we should be able to trust the people upstream that they are doing what's best for us instead of just doing what's right for bottom, you know, for their profit margin or what's easy and convenient. Yes. And that, you know, I don't think we're, we're ever going to be in a position where we're going to totally trust that that's the case. Um, you know, that is, 
Um, it's just a product of the way that, you know, capitalism works and the economy works and business works and, yeah. um, you know, the stock market and being a publicly traded company works where you have to, you know, produce profit every year and people do it at, an, at any cost. And there's, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of examples of corporations, you know, that given uh, faced with data that's like, hey, this thing that we're doing is polluting and they just go whatever. Mm -hmm. They don't care. So. There's a movie, and I don't remember the name of it, and I don't know if you've seen it, but it was about Dark Waters. Was that? Yes, Dark I believe waters, so. Yes. And um, when the cows were going crazy. Yeah. Right. And then, oh, that bothered me so badly because that lady who was working with it, she had a son, and he had the birth defects, and. Yeah, there's a great documentary that um uh, that's I think it's on Netflix called The Devil We Know. Um, which um, I encourage people to watch because it is a it's a very well done um, documentary that really looks at you know what is what is happening behind the scenes with a lot of these corporations. That particular film, Dark Waters, is sort of a theatrical adaptation or story of the lawyer that um, Mark Ruffalo plays, named uh, Robert Balot, who has spent twenty plus years doggedly suing and pursuing Dupont. Um, because they have been um, polluting drinking water or water sources mm -hmm. with these highly persistent um, fluorinated chemicals, these PFAS chemicals that I mentioned that are linked to sperm uh, degradation issues, mm -hmm. as well as all these different types of cancers. Um, and yeah, so the, there's a documentary, The Devil We Know, that really explains that whole story. And then there's The Dark Waters, which is the theatrical adaptation of the sort of court drama version of that, but both of those together in tandem paint a very clear picture of where corporations are really trying to either, um, you know, suppress science, which they often do, um, and and the lengths that they go to to suppress information about the harm that they might be causing. And until that changes, and that's not really only going to change from a regulatory standpoint, um, we're going to still be dealing with the downstream issues of cleaning up the mess after it's it's happened and and you know historically that's just humans are not really good at future planning mm -hmm. um so we tend to focus more on downstream solutions um and downstream solutions are more costly right, right? then we'll just what kind of cookware do you use then Oh, um, I use cast iron, enameled cast iron, carbon steel, and stainless steel. Um, I basically don't use any nonstick um, or nonstick or ceramic nonstick, which is sort of the newer generation of uh, cookware that's out there. Um, yeah. So how do you get it to not stick? So I've tried to change over some things in my household, but it sticks and then everyone's all wound up because it sticks. So how do you get it to not stick to like your stainless um, steel? And it's, it's honestly for cast iron, it's really just cooking technique. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, uh, you know, I, there's plenty of YouTube videos that kind of teach proper, like how to heat your pan properly. You do need to have fat in the pan. So whether it's, mm. you know, butter or ghee or whatever fat that you use to cook with, um, you know, the pan, it's just, there's a sort of a sequence and occasionally it sticks, but you know, if I can, I can do, you know, eggs over easy on a cast iron pan without a problem. Um, but you also have to baby your cast iron a little bit. So it's not quite the same as like a nonstick where you just kind of rub it with some water and some soap and it's good. And then it's always the same. You do really have to care for cast iron and make sure that, you know, once you 
cook in it and you clean it, you put it back on the stove, you heat it up and you put a layer of whatever oil or fat that you're using. It helps to kind of maintain the um, seasoning of uh, the pan. But, you know, cast iron is the original nonstick and it can be, you know, if I can make a eggs over easy or sunny side up without a problem, um, anybody can. And I'm not any kind of professional <laughs> chef or anything. I've just also been using them for years. And it does, it does take time. And I know people that have, you know, one pan just for eggs because it's like the perfect pan. And they, sure. as soon as you cook something else on it, you kind of mess up the seasoning. So gotcha. um, yeah, so it's just, it takes practice. And I usually just point people towards, you know, whatever is the, the company of, you know, is it a lodge cast iron? Is it mm -hmm. field company? Whatever is the brand, because they usually will have tutorials on their own website about here's how you use it and here's how you care for it here's how you clean it here's how you store it and you want to follow those instructions because that is how you maintain um, a good pan but i've had the same pieces of cookware for the most part for years and they will last outlast me um and and you know that's a that to me is a, a bonus mm -hmm. are you cooking state. with gas um i am cooking with gas but that's just because i'm a renter and i that's what I have. Gas is actually not an ideal cooking um, uh, tool because it um, can contribute to indoor air pollution issues with um, uh, 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 nitrogen dioxide and, and other indoor air pollutants. So electric is actually preferred, even though people think that, and this is a good example, they think that cooking with gas is cleaner and it makes yep. your food better. Yep. Um, this is actually just a marketing campaign from the gas industry. So there's nothing cleaner about cooking with gas. There's nothing better about it from a from a chef cooking perspective. Um, uh, it's a yeah. more personal preference. It's it's a um, I I would say it's actually a health preference. So mm -hmm. in the United States anyway, um, there are there are some state regulations. They vary from state to state, but there's no federal regulation that your gas stove be vented outside, which is the only gas appliance that doesn't legally require um, ex exterior ventilation. So if you have a gas fireplace, it is legally required to vent outside. If you have a gas um, dryer, clothes dryer, it is legally required to vent outside. Your stove is the only exception to that. And that's because the, um, the gas industry and the stove people have, you know, pushed hard against that. And so what that means is that, you know, you have your hood on your stove, but if you're not turning that on when you cook, um, you are not, it's not venting outside. And so you, um, homes that have gas stoves can have, you know, levels of um, uh, combustion byproducts that pollute the indoor air that would technically violate federal laws um, for outdoor air. Well, I am learning yeah. left and right. That Someone. I never even, I'm honestly, that never crossed my mind. I do have yeah. an electric, I don't have gas in my home, but anyway, yeah, that's very interesting. I never. Yeah, electric is actually better um, from, from a health standpoint. Um, yeah, so, mm -hmm. um, but the bottom line is turn your hood on when you're using a gas stove. If somebody's listening and has a gas stove, they would want to turn their vent hood on. Um, and ideally open a window at the same time while you're cooking. So I want to go through some everyday toxins that um, yeah. I want you to shed some light on. Sure. And I want people to know that we're not judging anyone if you're using this stuff because, I mean, you're just doing what 
a majority of the population do. Um, Laura and I, this is kind of our jam. <laughs> so we, we think maybe we overanalyze things a little bit, but I mean, it is what it is. So let's talk about receipts that you're getting at the grocery store, at Starbucks or wherever. How toxic is an everyday receipt that you get? So I think that the, um, they're not great. Um, the thermal paper, which most cash register receipts use, and this is, I think, also of the days of like the fax machine. Fax machines often use thermal uh, printing. Um, the the that paper feels different than other paper. It feels kind of powdery, and the reason that it feels different is because it is actually coated in a powder, and that powder is free BPA or bisphenol A or other bisphenol, sometimes it's bisphenol S or F or whatever. Um, and, and BPA is a well-established endocrine disrupting chemical. It's in the blood of or urine uh, of 93 plus percent of people tested by the CDC. Um, it is linked to very uh, long list of chronic health issues, everything from weight gain and obesity and insulin resistance and diabetes to cancers, to hormone disruption, thyroid problems, um, developmental issues in children, like a very long list of health issues. Um, and so we, um, when we're handling cash register receipts, we are actually able to absorb that BPA powder in through our, our skin um, quite quickly. And then if we are, you know, going to the store and getting some snacks and sitting in the car and opening up a bag of chips or whatever, and then we're eating, we're actually increasing that hand to mouth um, transfer of BPA from the things that we're touching onto our food. And then we are ingesting it. Um, and so, you know, unless you have a, a, a business reason, like you need it for your business taxes or whatever to save your receipt, I encourage people to not take the receipt. And for people that are working in retail environments where they're handling receipts, which they that is very classically a occupational exposure. So they're handling receipts all day, every day. Um, I really encourage those people to wear, you know, latex or nitrile gloves when they're working and handling um, money and receipts uh, so that they're not constantly being exposed. Um, there is some research, I don't remember what the, the data had said, but that looked at um, uh, cashiers and the levels of BPA would spike during their shift and then drop a little bit and spike during their shift um, because, because of that, because they're handling receipts. So, you know, I'll, I'll kind of back up a little bit, you know, when if people are hearing all of this stuff for the first time, the first reaction is often like, oh my God, overwhelming. What, she just listed a hundred thousand places where these things are hiding, what do I do? Um, a, a couple things to sort of preface that this whole dialogue is that one, um, the goal is not perfection. Perfection is not possible. The goal is just to minimize our exposures in as many places as we can. There have been numerous studies in various different areas of plastics and pesticides and, and house dust and all these other different areas that show that when we modify our behaviors or our product usage, we can 
reduce the levels of these chemicals in our bodies. And that's what we're aiming for. So we're aiming for a reduction in as many places as possible, knowing that there's a lot of exposures that we can't do anything about, and we're not going to worry too much about those. Ideally, in addition to addressing and minimizing these exposures, we're also optimizing our body's capacity to deal with them. And we're doing that through good nutrition because our body needs the nutrients in our you know, cruciferous vegetables and our garlics and our onions to actually have the building blocks to be able to safely detoxify these compounds. So we kind of want to turn the dial down on our exposure while turning the dial up on our um, nutrition, on sleep. We want to minimize stress, like all that good stuff that we mentioned earlier. Like we need that even just to deal with toxins, let alone all the other things that it those things are helpful for. Mm -hmm. And so one, you know, we're, it's not about perfection. We're doing the best that we can. And then the third thing is that this is a journey, right? We don't do this stuff overnight. So right. people are like, oh my God, I have to throw everything out. No, you don't. <laughs> it's just slow weeding out process. It can take years. And it's just, a, it's just, it just becomes your sort of new normal to say, mm -hmm. oh, I don't buy these type of products. I buy those type of products instead. Mm -hmm. I don't eat this type of food. I eat that type of food. Yeah. So the idea is that over time, whether it takes six months or six years, you are like just working at chipping away at, at all of this. So with that said, what I like to start with is, you know, really looking at this through the framework of what are, what's the easiest things for people do, to do. So like, you know, obviously I mentioned the whole thing about the gas stove, that's not an easy thing to fix. So don't worry about that. If you're in the market for a new stove and you wanna, what do I get? Get electric or induction. And then don't worry about it ever again. Mm -hmm. um, but generally speaking, we want to start with the stuff that's really easy, that doesn't have a barrier, right? Because people, when we're asking them to make changes, a lifestyle change, a habit change, if there's any barrier that's going to make that hard, they're not going to do it. Right. Right. So we want to make it easy. So I always start with the things that are free and the things that are easy, because often the misconception is being healthy in this way costs a lot of money and it can but it doesn't have to. And so starting with the things that are free and easy can be really helpful. So for example, taking not taking the cash register receipts is certainly something that's free. It's generally speaking, something that's pretty easy. You just say, thanks, I don't need it. Can you throw that out? Yep. It's that's really normally what I do. Yeah, I'm like, no, I don't need it. Thank you. If you do need it, um, if people do have like business expenses or whatever that they need to keep receipts for, um, have a little Ziploc bag in your purse or in your wallet that you put them in there. Because when you put them up against your money, you're now rubbing it up against your money. So now your money is contaminated. My money is contaminated because I put, I know how toxic they are and I put them in my wallet. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, we're just transferring. We're just moving these exposures around to different places. Um, the other thing I'll just add as a, a side note, um, do not put thermal receipts in the recycling. They should never go in the recycling. They're not supposed to be recycled because they contaminate the recycle stream. So recycled paper now has BPA in it because people put thermal paper in with your cash register with the regular recycling. So that should go in the garbage has toxic chemicals on it. We don't want to put that into the recycling stream because what else is recycled or toilet paper is made from post-consumer um, recycling. So there's traces of BPA in our toilet paper, not saying that so that people can worry about it, but just as a fact of this is what happens when we don't properly dispose of materials as they get transferred. We're not getting rid of them. 
We're just moving them around into and different People don't areas. need to rush on and get a bidet so they stop using toilet paper. Well, I think people should go out and rush out and get a bidet because it will minimize toilet paper use in general, which is good, even if it's not about toxic chemicals. Right. Um, but and the slowly, people, you don't have to rush out today. Like yes. you could do it next yes. month. But a good a bidet attachment is a great, great um, thing to have in your house. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so the cash register receipts falls into the category of free and easy. Mm -hmm. um, the the next one that I think is is super free and uh, very free and super easy is um, addressing all of the home fragrances, the scented candles, the air fresheners, the plugins, the sprays. These are so common. So many people have these. It's a mm -hmm. giant industry, millions and millions of dollars in revenue every year, you know, you go to a hard, like a Home Depot kind of store and they have a full eight foot section of shelf space. That's like six shelves high dedicated to all of these home fragrance items. And so people just, again, we have this general assumption that if something is for sale, it's safe mm -hmm. and that somebody is looking out for us. That's not the case. These chemicals are not tested for safety prior to going to market. Um, and that is um, how our chemical policy works, unfortunately. I hate um, those aisles. Those aisles get yeah, those aisles are, are and, bad. And like the detergent uh, fabric softener. Yeah. And not, I literally cannot walk down those aisles because it just almost makes me sick instantly. Yeah. And a lot of people, um, a lot of people have that experience and they do either one of two things. They ignore it. Or they recognize that like, this is a warnings. This is a red flag that your body is sending up. If you're getting a headache, if you're getting dizzy, if you're getting nauseous, if you're getting asthma or respiratory distress, yeah. that is a warning sign that your body is sending you a message to say, danger, get out. And people are like, oh, whatever, it's fine. I love the smell of cinnamon buns or whatever, <laughs> right? I'm going to get the cinnamon bun scented candle and you know, whatever, it's just ridiculous. So the, the, the not buying those saves people money, right? So not buying those. The reason why we don't want to buy those is because those, in addition to this sort of cocktail of chemicals that are released from these scented products, these scented products almost always contain phthalates, which is a class of chemicals. Um, in fragranced products, they're used as a solvent and a fixative for the fragrance formula. So you have the fragrance formula and then they add phthalates to that to make it stick around. So, you know, you mentioned like laundry detergent and dryer sheets. The reason why the smell from the laundry detergent or dryer sheets lingers on your clothes for weeks, if not more, is because phthalates are present and they're helping it stick around for longer. Um, the reason why, you know, you can wash your hair at seven o'clock in the morning and then at 10 o'clock at night, you can still smell your shampoo on your hair. The reason for that is because phthalates have fixed. It's like a, pl it's a plasticizer. So it's basically coating your fabric or your skin or your hair to keep the fragrance um, compounds um, lingering for longer. And the reason why that's bad is because phthalates are an endocrine disrupting chemical. They're one of the most researched along with BPA um, found in cash register receipts and also plastics. Um, it's one of the most researched and it's linked to, it is linked to both male and female fertility issues. Um, and uh, uh, again, a sort of similarly long list of, of health issues, um, including 
weight gain, obesity, insulin resistance, and diabetes, um, early onset puberty for young girls, like increased risk of breast cancer, um, any, any estrogen um, dependent condition like endometriosis or uterine fibroids or breast cancer can be exacerbated in the presence of these synthetic estrogens. And um, because of how ubiquitous these scented products are in our homes, um, research studies looking at um, house dust, which is um, where a lot of the chemicals that off gas from our materials and ultimately settle in our dust, they end up in our house dust. And so our house dust is sort of like this Petri dish of everything that's off gassing in our homes and we can get a good idea. So uh, studies that look at house dust have found phthalates in like 100% of house dust samples because we're using all of these scented products in our homes. And then we're also using plastics that contain phthalates like our vinyl shower curtain, which is a whole other we can get into that later if we want, but back to the fragrance items is like, these are, these are chemicals that are polluting our indoor air. Um, they're making our indoor air quality, quality bad. Um, the EPA has found that indoor air can be up five to 10, all the way up to a hundred times worse than outdoor air. I mentioned earlier, there's federal regulations that regulate outdoor air pollutants. There are no agencies that regulate indoor air pollutants. And so we're on our own when it comes to that. And so we have to make sure that we're doing the best that we can to minimize those um, pollutants. Every breath that we're taking, we're breathing in phthalates if we have these scented products in our homes. And so it's just a constant stream of these endocrine disrupting chemicals, the synthetic estrogen coming into the bloodstream. The fastest way to get something into your bloodstream outside of injecting it with a needle is to breathe it in is through inhalation. And so we do want to make sure that we're not bringing in these products into our homes. There's a huge emotional attachment here yeah. um, because our sense of smell is um, connected to the oldest and most primitive part of our brain, our limbic system, which is where our olfactory receptors um, are. It's also where our memories are stored. And so um, the, the scent is their most powerful memory trigger, which is why, you know, oh, since the smells like my grandma's house or smells yeah. like my mom, you know, like we have those emotional attachments um, to scent, which is why, you know, children tend to use the same laundry detergent as their parents because it reminds them of home. Mm -hmm. And so there is, we have to kind of break that cycle of that type of scent attachment to these synthetic uh, fragrances. And if people want their house to smell like something, get a good quality essential oil diffuser and, and just use that. But, you know, open your windows, right? Open your windows, get some good cross breeze in, clear out that air, stop buying scented candles. Those are things that are pretty free and easy and straightforward that anybody can do. Um, another one that's really simple is taking off your shoes. I know that sounds like almost too simple, but taking off your shoes when you come inside is a really simple um, step, especially if you have carpeting in your house, mm -hmm. because your carpeting tends to be a magnet. It's like a sink, a container for all the things that you track in and not just the visible things like dirt on the bottom of your shoe, but all the invisible stuff like lead, pesticides from the yard or the golf course or the park that you just came from, um, uh, you know, particulate matter coming from the car, uh, cars on the road. So you have all of these chemicals that sit in your carpet. And when we um, 
bring our shoes in and walk around our house with our shoes on, we are tracking that into our house. And, mm -hmm. and um, you know, if there's children in the house, they're crawling around on the floors, they actually have higher levels of exposures than the adults living in the same home because of all these chemicals kind of gravitating in towards the carpets. Mm -hmm. So you, you hit something else that was on my list of things. How about water bottles? I'm a water bottle snob. Everyone has to have glass or stainless steel yeah. in, in my home. And I really have a hard time buying water at this point. And when we built our house, the contractor, he bought cases of water and it would sit in the sun and then they yeah. would just grab it and throw it into the cooler. And I said to my husband, do not drink that water. You need water. Yeah. I will send water with you. And he's like, why? So I'm like, it's sitting there. All, it's cooking. Who knows yeah. how many times it's been heated? And, oh, it drives me nuts. Yeah. And that's another, you know, plastics are a really big area that um, I encourage people to address and, and to minimize um, where it comes into contact with foods and, and beverages and anything we're going to eat or drink. Mm -hmm. um, obviously we're not going to eliminate plastic everywhere. You know, we, it's plastic is necessary. That's not the point. Not all plastics are terrible. Most of them are, um, certainly anything that's a single use plastic is not you know, there's potential health concerns, but then there's just broader environmental, mm -hmm. um, concerns. And, you know, we have to remember that there is no such thing as a way. So when we say I'm going to throw something away, right. there's no such thing as a way. A way is not a place. Right. It's just a way. It's just an absence of here. And so when we recycle or throw out or whatever our materials, they often come back to us in the form of microplastics in our drinking water. Right. Which is common. Most people have microplastics in their drinking water. There's microplastics and snow in the um, Fuji mountains. So it, it's in the environment. Like we've done a bad thing. Right. We've done a bad thing as humans that is um, irreparable. We can't undo it, but we can hopefully stop making it worse. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not using single use plastics, really minimizing plastic use whenever possible. Mm -hmm. um, not just recycling it because only a small fraction of plastics actually get recycled in this country. But back to the water bottle, um, you know, bottled. First of all, bottled water is not better than tap water. In fact, most bottled water is just tap water right. at a 9,000% plus premium, right? That's the price differential. Wow. It can be that high. So um, certainly some bottled water can be filtered or it's partially filtered or it has a different mineral profile. So it tastes a little better. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, Avion water, I hate the way it tastes. It's very minerally tasting. That's because it is a French water and the water in France has a different mineral profile than the waters here in the United States. The um, bottled water that like Pepsi, Pepsi makes, which is Dasani, they add minerals that make the water sweet tasting because Americans like everything to taste sweet. So our water tastes sweet. So people like that water because it tastes good. Right. And so, so our bottled waters, first of all, not necessarily filtered has the same contaminants and, you know, microplastics and, and PFAS chemicals that your tap water does. And it's also sitting in this plastic bottle, which research suggests that these plastics this PET plastic, which is the type of plastic that are, you know, reusable single use water bottles are made out of, um, can leach um, endocrine disrupting chemicals, including phthalates. 
which we just talked about. So in phthalates are used in fragrance products as a fixative. They're used in plastics as a, as a plasticizer to make plastics um, more flexible and resilient. So that's why I mentioned the shower curtain because a shower curtain is made of polyvinyl chloride or PVC. If we think of PVC, we often think of like a rigid pipe, like a PVC mm -hmm. piping. Well, in order to make that material soft and flexible into a shower curtain, mm -hmm. they add phthalates to soften it. And sometimes it's, you know, 10, 20% of the weight of the shower curtain is actually just phthalates that are not molecularly bound. They, they smell when you open a new oh, vinyl yeah. shower curtain, you're literally just breathing phthalates in. And so, um, you know, my point being that phthalates are used in plastics and in fragranced items. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to bottled water, there is um, a, an abundance of research that shows that these plastics can leach um, endocrine disrupting chemicals into whatever is the substrate, in this case, water, um, in um, just, it does it on its own. And then when you introduce heat, that can amplify the migration of these chemicals into the water. Um, if we're not talking about bottled water, but we're talking about other types of plastics, like maybe your plastic Tupperware containers at home where you store your leftover food, um, in addition to heat, we also have issues with um, acidity and oil. So oily foods and acidic foods will increase the migration of chemicals. Mm -hmm. um, so heat, oil, acidity, and then abrasion. So if we're scratching or abrading the surface, um, and this can happen when we put our plastics in the dishwasher. So I don't recommend people put plastics in the dishwasher. Um, I don't recommend people put plastics in the microwave. I don't recommend that people put any food in plastic containers and that they are using same thing with water bottles, glass or stainless steel um, storage containers. Glass is more readily available and easier because you can see in it, see through it. <laughs> but how often are you grabbing a contain like a bag of broccoli and throwing it in your microwave and eating it? Um, I don't do that personally. Uh, I, don't, I, don't I don't own a microwave at my home. Um, yeah. But whenever I see those, I'm like. But, you know, I think that there is, you know, I think there's people do, right? And we have to meet people where they're at. And a lot of people will buy because maybe they don't have access to fresh um, fruits and vegetables that they'll buy frozen fruits and vegetables and they'll, you know, it's, it's more mm -hmm. um, affordable for them. And that's okay. We I wanna... think frozen is good, but I don't like when they cook it in the plastic, like, you know, you can even buy it in that plastic and take it out and cook it on your stove. That's what oh, I yes. recommend with people. Cause I get it. Like, you know, sometimes you got to get frozen stuff and that's fine, but to cook it in that plastic, you're just, Oh yeah. I mean, that's generally not even recommended to cook them. Some, some of them make like cook it in the bag, yeah, Yep, exactly. Um, but the, that is, not recommended. Um, so, you know, the goal is to really just minimize our, our food contact with plastic as much as possible in as many places that's feasible. Um, and, uh, you know, that can, that can mean not getting, not using single use plastics, um, like your water bottle when you're out. And certainly not if it's sitting in the back of a car or a truck or a factory or wherever out in the sun, mm -hmm. um, you know, and there's always exceptions. So, you know, for example, I did, I posted something on Instagram. This was, must've been in 2019 because it was, I was at an airport. So it certainly wasn't an airport this past year. Um, but, you know, I, um, I always bring my stainless steel water bottle with me Sometimes airports have filtered water stations 
where you can fill your bottle. Sometimes they don't. When they don't, I'm going to go buy a bottle of water and I'm not going to worry about it. And I'm going to drink it. And I'm going to go, Hey, look at me and drinking out of a plastic bottle. <laughs> I'm not going to beat myself up about it because it's happened so rarely that I'm not going to stress about it when it does happen. And I think that that comes with kind of being able to triage Mm -hmm. these exposures into like, do I need to worry about this? Do I not need to worry about it? Because the stress and overwhelm that comes with this can also be toxic in a way. And so we have to kind of learn to, to balance, um, Mm -hmm. you know, taking action and then, you know, giving yourself some leeway. So even if it's like an 80, 20, 80% of the time I Mm -hmm. drink out of glass and 20% of the time and 80% of the time I eat organic and 20% of the time I do whatever. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we need to have that um, built in because otherwise we develop this sort of neurotic um, obsession about everything being non-toxic. And I think that's Mm -hmm. that we can go too far. Yeah, we can go too far into that. That's not to say that, you know, avoiding those exposures is, is a bad thing. Like we still want to do that. Um, but we don't need to get to that degree of, of neurotic about it. So, you know, occasionally drinking out of a plastic bottle is fine. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's the consistent, constant, you know, everyday, mm-hmm. um, uh, consumption that, that, that can be problematic, especially when it's paired with all of the other phthalate and BPA and other endocrine disrupting exposures that we're getting. And it goes back to that additive effect concept. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't believe it, but it has already been 55 minutes since oh, we started goodness. talking <laughs> and I still have a list of stuff to ask you. So I think I'm going to have to have you back as a guest so we can go because there's a lot of stuff we haven't talked about. Like I'd, I'd like to go through the different BPAs and I'd like to go through feminine health. Pro- you know, there's so many things that I'd like us to cover. So would you be willing to pop back on so we can discuss sure. that stuff? Yeah, sure. That would be great. So I want to thank you for coming on today. And we are not done though, because we are just at the tip of the iceberg. And anyone listening, even if you can make one of these changes, even if you can stop grabbing your receipt after after you go somewhere, or I will be now having a Ziploc bag to put all my receipts in because I do keep a lot of my receipts for business or if I'm at the grocery store, I always say just keep them. But even if you can find one thing, buy one different pan, uh, you have to start somewhere and you can't do everything at once. And if you do everything at once, you're probably not going to survive all the changes. (laughs) Very true. Is that pretty? uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's too overwhelming. It is. Um, it's too overwhelming when people try to do everything at once. It is. And I'm going to put all the links on where you can find Laura. She has tons of resources on her webpage. She has a blog. She has different links for stuff you can buy. She even has a course. So um, I look forward to learning more from you also in the future. Great. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Fast Lane with Sarah Jane podcast. If you like what you hear, share the podcast and hit the subscribe button so you get updates on all new episodes. And we truly love feedback, so ratings and reviews are appreciated.